This is Novel Marketing. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr., and with me as always is James L. Rubart, best-selling novelist and marketing guru. I'm a guru? Okay. Do I so do I get to wear robes then? No, no robes for you. I'm sorry. But you can wear the hat. Guru's come with a fancy hat. <laughs> the novel marketing <laughs> guru hat. Awesome. Yeah, it says guru on the top, just in case they forget. <laughs> and that's that's available for purchase in our store, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's not. And of course, Thomas is here, Mr. Technology Wizard, app developer, developer, marketing sage, author, owner of Author Media, and one of the smartest men I know. I mean, you're you're one of these guys that has done more in your 30 years than most people do in their entire life. So. Oh, you're 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 embarrassing me, and you uh, just outed me as being 30 years old. This is it was a big <laughs> milestone. Okay, it was hard. <laughs> But you broke through, you pushed through, you made it. Well, you don't have any choice. You just get older. <laughs> oh, I see. You mean it just you can't stop it, it just happens to oh, you. All right. Well, today we have our QA extravaganza. This is episode eighty. And as we do every ten episodes, we gather together all of these small questions that aren't worth their own episode, or there's not enough of an answer. We don't know enough to answer a whole episode's worth, and we bundle them together. So if you don't like the topic, just wait, because it will change. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it'll change quickly. And Thomas, if someone is listening and wants to send in their own question for our 90th episode, where should they send it? Go to novelmarketing.com. It's very hard to remember. It's the name of the podcast. And then you put the little period and then the com and uh, push the ask a question button. And we get a lot of questions from a lot of folks. In fact, our first question comes from runescapegold.com. Wait a minute. No, we all, yeah, we also get some spam on that form. <laughs> uh, I love that name, Runescape runescapegold.com yeah somebody should buy that domain and and uh, sell runescape gold i don't think that's a thing anymore okay moving on our first question comes from dave smale and he asks i know it's never a good idea to get a friend or a friend of a friend of a friend with an english lit degree to be your editor does the same hold true for beta readers if so how do you find dependable beta beta readers great question so I will answer, and then James may rebut my answer. But I would say that it's okay to have a friend be a beta reader. What you're looking for in a beta reader is not someone who knows what good writing is. They know what they like as a fan of the genre. So ideally, if you're writing a mystery, your beta readers read a dozen mysteries a year. What you don't want is if you're writing mystery books, somebody who's really into fantasy or romance, and they don't read mysteries, to be your beta readers. Because they're going to give you advice that's perhaps not the best advice. And beta readers, ultimately, their goal is to tell you what's working and what's not working. They're not there to solve problems. So if... A character is boring or they don't make sense. They don't tell you how to make the character make sense. They just say, this character doesn't make sense to me. I will push back only in the sense uh, of your comment, Thomas, where you say, hey, they need to be readers in your genre. They need to be super fans of your genre. I agree with that, but I also like to find a beta reader who is well-read. In other words, they read across genres because they're probably going to be able to give you an insight from a perspective that a hardcore genre reader won't be able to give. That's that okay, fair enough. Although I will say that certain rules in one genre are broken in other genres. And so you have to take that but if they're well read, I guess they would know what the different rules are. So 
I, I yeah. withdraw. I withdraw my objection. <laughs> I withdraw. And, and the other thing is you test out beta readers. I have three that I have landed on at this point where I trust implicitly everything they say because they're so spot on. The other thing is you can compare. Essentially, you're asking for a layperson's macro edit. Ah, this was working. This wasn't working, as Thomas said. I'm not exactly sure why, but I kind of got bored here. And if that matches up with the same input that you're getting consistently from your editor or editor, then that person is gold. Treat them kindly. I will say, for, for my beta readers for Courtship and Crisis, I didn't pick only people that agreed with me. I picked people who were kind, but I had a few folks who had a very different perspective, and their objections were put right there in the book. And it was great feedback for me to make modifications in the editing process to better explain myself to try to head those objections off at the pass, so to speak. All right, our next question is from Rick Barry, author of The Methuselah Project. And he I'm, asks, I'm glad you said that word instead of <laughs> me. Methuselah. Methuselah. <laughs> well done. <laughs> and he asks, I see that many authors have their own online listing in Wikipedia, so they have their own Wikipedia page. Is that important? Is that a vital part of an author's arsenal? Uh, you know, even in addition to the author's own website, Twitter page, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, is that Wikipedia listing crucial. All right. It had better not be because most authors don't have Wikipedia page, <laughs> including James L. Rubart, co-host what? of this show, best-selling author, Christy Award-winning. So if you go to the Christy Award page, it links to James L. Rubart's page, but his page doesn't actually exist. And that's not at all uncommon on Wikipedia. The reality is, is that having a Wikipedia page is a huge deal. And it's not something that's easy to get. It's against Wikipedia's rules for you to create a page for yourself, which you would want to do because it helps your SEO, it builds your notoriety, your credibility. There's a lot of good things that come with a Wikipedia page. Although, beware, your enemies can edit your Wikipedia page as well. <laughs> and so it can get, uh, it can become a thorn in your side. Some people wish they didn't have a Wikipedia page. Uh, but so how do you uh, get a Wikipedia page? Well, you get talked about in the press. Generally speaking, the most common type of Wikipedia page to get taken down is what's called a vanity page. People try to create a page for themselves and it gets taken down. And it's all of the work of building a web page without any of the benefit because it's gone <laughs> on the internet. Uh, so if you haven't gotten any press, if there's no articles about you as an author in a, uh, some sort of online publication from a mainstream media source, it's very unlikely that your page will stay up. Uh, and just to reiterate the point that Thomas says, uh, it's it's a big desire of a lot of people to have that Wikipedia page. But remember, anyone, anyone, anyone can go in and edit that page. So it, it can be fun, but it can also be risky. But it does make you look like a big deal. I, one of our authors uh, in at uh, Enclave Publishing was Kathy Tires. And in her past life, she wrote Star Wars books. And anything related to Star Wars will get you on Wikipedia. So that's the other hack. If you if you touch a Star Wars film or game in any way, your Wikipedia material. And so she has a very robust Wikipedia page because the Star Wars community is very active on Wikipedia. And it's great for her marketing because we're able to cross-promote her new books, which are also fa uh, science fiction, on her Wikipedia page. So, Thomas, can we jump back to our, our uh, for a second here, to our buddy RuneScapeGold.com? He actually did ask a question that, that I, I, love, I love this question. So the question that he asks or she asks is, do I have the guts to quit my job? And the answer is, yes, you do. All right. 
moving on. <laughs> no, I, 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 I love that question because that is, that is a, that is a serious question. Uh, writers and authors get to the point where they say, am I making enough where I can step out on my own? But, but usually the answer is they're not making enough. And the question is, am I making enough that I can quit my job and in two years or three years get to the point where I am making a living? Um, I'll give you an example of a friend of mine. In fact, I just had this conversation last night with him and he is a very talented photographer and videographer. And he is asking the question right now, wow, should I quit my full-time job to pursue photography and videography full-time? And the advice I gave him and the advice I would give our friend RuneScape is you can do both. In other words, you can be doing your photography and your writing on the side and building it, building it, building it while you're doing um, your regular full-time job. And to give you an example of this, Thomas and I, we are doing multiple jobs. We have multiple careers going. When I was in broadcast school, one of my professors gave me a great, very simple, but very profound piece of advice. He said, whatever you do for work, diversify, diversify, have a number of things going. Our friend Randy Ingermanson, for example, Randy is an extremely successful teacher of fiction. He's got, I don't know, Thomas, it's like 20,000 people that subscribe to his advanced fiction writing.com and you should if you're not subscribed to it well randy still works part-time for vala sciences um from from home down in san diego so randy has these two things going i i would encourage you runescape to diversify yes pursue your writing but also have some other things going i think you're encouraging spammers to send more spam questions to our uh, contact form <laughs> <laughs> no, but this this is exactly right. And this is not new advice. It's actually in the Bible. Uh, one of the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs says, uh, plant your fields in the morning and stay busy all afternoon because you don't know where your profit will come from, the one or the other or both. And so it could be there's a bumper crop and you make lots of money from planting your fields or there could be a drought or flood. And what you did in the afternoon, blacksmithing or whatever your other job was, that's what supports you. And so having a little bit of diversification uh, can be quite helpful. All right. Our next question comes from Courage Knight, who is a novelist of a whole bunch of books and the author of Do It Yourself, Editing a Guide for the Ebook Author. And she asks, I'm confused. What's the difference between a web page and a Facebook page? Yes, I know what a web page is and I know what a Facebook page is. But what I mean is the content that I put on them. It sounds like I'm supposed to write the same content on both, telling a story, sharing information with my fans. But why should I duplicate content? Is there any difference in what I post to my blog uh, and my website and my Facebook page? So there's a principle of fishing. And I should say, I got the fishing merit badge in Boy Scouts because uh, of the love of my fellow scouts because I am famously bad at fishing if i'm holding the pole nothing will bite and so you know, i had to catch three different kinds of fish to get the fishing merit badge and literally nothing would bite and so one of the other scouts held the pole until he got a bite and then he handed it to me and i was able to reel in the third fish to get that merit badge that's how bad i am at fishing but the one thing i remember from fishing classes in boy scouts is that you have to go where the fish are you just because you want to sit on the porch and fish doesn't mean you're going to catch fish if there's no fish where you're fishing and so one of the reasons that you go to different social networks, and I, I kind of understand your question a bit broadly, because people ask this question to us a lot about, do I have to be on both Facebook and Twitter? And they're talking about different social networks, and what should I post on these? And the reality is, is that each culture 
each social network has its own culture and its own dialect. They talk in different ways. The message, what you're saying as an author may be the same, but the way that you say it, if you want it to be effective, has to be different. And if you want to see this in real life, I encourage you to go to an African-American Baptist church and then the next Sunday go to a white Baptist church. It's the same doctrine. But the experience will be very different because the cultures really? are different. <laughs> One is very boring, arguably, compared to the other. The uh, and there are many other differences. What they're more—it's just a different culture, right? And so, it, it social networks are that same way. And you have to spend time in the social network, listening and understanding and appreciating that culture, because it's the reality is is that one is not boring. You go to to one of those if that's your culture, that's very meaningful to you because it's what you grew up at with and it's what you appreciate, and you may be very uncomfortable in the other one because that's not what you're used to. So when it comes to Facebook, that's where the fish are. People spend their time on Facebook, especially if you're targeting, and I know most authors are targeting women between 35 and 55. And that's the biggest demographic on Facebook. And that, that's where they that's where they're hanging out. The downside with only being on Facebook, because there's every few years people are like, I don't need a website, I can just be on Facebook. And I'm like, don't do it. It's a trap. Because you don't own anything on Facebook. And Facebook is a capricious master and it will turn off uh your access to your fans, or it can and it does very frequently. Um and what works on Facebook is very different. So blogs, you talk about your website, you know, posting text on a website or a blog, it's very text-centric, it's longer form. Whereas Facebook, what works best on Facebook is video and then images and then everything else. So if you really want to do Facebook well, you need to be making videos uh, in my, right now. Now that the algorithm will change, maybe in six months, video is not quite so big. But right now, video is huge. And and think about it in terms of your your own use of Facebook. Just test yourself. You probably scroll down when you see a meme or when you see a video. You you probably stop and at least give it a glance. But how many times have you scrolled right by just text that's going on? I, I do it all the time. So one of the images that uh, helps people in regard to different social networks, as Thomas said, the culture is very different on each one. Think of the, each one of them as a party, right? Social media, it's, it's a party. Well, you're going to dress differently at a bonfire on the beach than you are at a thousand plate uh, dinner fundraiser. And there's going to be different um, ways you act. You're going to act differently at each one of those parties. Even so if it's of, the exact same people. So imagine right, right. a like a fraternity point. and they have the bonfire party and then they have the seven course meal. It's the exact same folks, but they're wearing different clothes and they have a totally different set of social norms because of the setting. That's exactly right. So at the bonfire, you just happen to have your guitar there and you break it out and you sing a Jack Johnson song, right? People love that. But you do that at the at the formal. That's like the most dinner. stereotypical bonfire <laughs> beach bonfire song to play. <laughs> Jack Johnson, I love Jack Johnson. <laughs> but so think of it in those think of uh, of it in those terms. I think that'll help. So I hope I hope that helps. We can talk more about this if y'all want to talk more about the differences of social networks. Let us know. We can do a whole episode on that and kind of talk about culturally how each network is different and how best to adapt your message for that network. Uh, but this is the extravaganza, so we're going to move on. The next question is from Brennan McPherson, uh, who has, has a book out called Kane. And I'm, I'm actually just starting to read that book, and I'm, I'm pretty excited to dive into it. So um, I'll let you know how that turns out. But right. Brennan's question is, greetings, guys. Fantastic podcast. 
Well, you're a fantastic Brendan. Such great content. Thanks for all your hard work and sharing your expertise freely with us newbies. So here's Brendan's question. What are the most important ingredients that go into helping any PR, public relations opportunity, successfully sell books? Brendan's talking to his publisher right now, and they've gotten their authors on Good Morning America, Fox News, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, yet sold fewer than 500 copies that week. Wow, that's terrible, Brennan says. Uh, agree. So Bren's question is, when you have excess of a million people watching and yet you only sell 500 books, what is that author doing wrong? I know, I know. <laughs> so, pick me, pick me. Yeah. We, we have not yet pulled a PR person onto this show, and it is not for lack of trying. Um, but we're very picky, uh, James and I, on which PR people we want to work with. Because a lot of PR people make a mistake of just booking the show, and they don't do the most important aspect which is training the author to be good yeah, on the media. That's right. That's so right. the most classic mistake is that you don't mention the name of your book. You use the phrase my book instead of talking about, well, as I was working on Courtship and Crisis, which, which is the title of my personal book, that simple change can make a huge difference. I, I, was talk I heard a story from one PR person, and they spent all this time getting their author on, I think it was Good Morning America, one of the shows. I think one of the shows you mentioned. And the author never once mentioned the title of the book and the host never mentioned it. And they did all of this work and no one knew what this person was an author of. It was a total failure. And that's just one of dozens of things you need to learn and going through practice questions or you need to be entertaining because if you do a good job on media interviews, media interviews will turn into additional media interviews. And, and another thing to, to keep in mind, and it, well, let me just riff on what Thomas just said. That is, it, it's such a big component is you need to be entertaining. You need to be provocative. You need to be encouraging. You need to do something that makes the, the person go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I need to know more. Remember the breadcrumb thing? We're doling out these little breadcrumbs. Um, oh, the breadcrumbs when it was in our, our bio episode. So now you got to go back and, and, and episode listen to 79. that. Episode <laughs> 79. Thank you, Thomas. But the point is that you need to have that viewer or that listener, say if you're on radio, go, oh my gosh. I have got to find out more about this. So if you can say, absolutely, you read my book and you're instantly going to lose those 30 pounds you've already law you wanted to lose. And let me prove it to you. Let me give you some authority on how that can happen. You're going to be intrigued to go look at that book. So you really have to give them a reason to go deeper, not just go, oh, I enjoyed hearing from that person, but that was great. And but I have no motive. In other words, an interview is a sales uh it's a sales experience. You are marketing yourself. You're marketing the benefit of reading that book. I will say one of my jobs, I'm a guest host uh, for a local talk radio station. So I have a kind of floating talk radio show that's at different times. And I, I have learned never to promise an author more than one segment of the show because sometimes authors are incredibly boring <laughs> when I'm interviewing them. And it's just like, Oh, I can't wait to get this person off because they're killing the ratings. And as a show host, and so you kind of have to put yourself in the other person's shoes, they don't care about you. They don't care about your book. And if they're really good, they don't care about themselves either. They only care about one thing, their viewers or their listeners, and they they measure that in ratings. And so if you're good for ratings, they will get you on more often. Why is Trump doing so well? 
because he's good for ratings. Anyone who talks about Trump, their ratings goes up. And so the news cycle for the last six months has been about Trump at any any opportunity. I was watching the Tonight Show or the Late Show, and Jimmy Fallon wanted to bring Cruz on. But Cruz is not good for ratings. And so what did Jimmy Fallon do? Jimmy Fallon dressed up like Trump, put on a Trump wig, and pretended to be Trump to interview Cruz because <laughs> Trump was good for ratings. Now, I... I know this is not a political show, but I did not vote for Trump and will not vote for Trump on any circumstances. But I do understand that he's good for ratings. He has that media-genic media training that makes him good for TV. And if you want to be good for TV and make this work, you need to learn that skill and not just get booked on the show. Exactly, Thomas. Exactly. I, you know, I do a lot of I do a lot of interviews, and one question that comes up often is how do you how do you come up with these unique stories? Your your stories are so unique and different. How do you come up with them? Now, it would be real inter- real easy to answer that question by going into the depth of my process and where I come up with. But that's boring, and so oftentimes I'll just say, ah, you know, too many comic books as a kid. Boom, it's out there. The hosts laugh, and we're on to the next thing. Remember, in an interview. You are the entertainer. Yes, this is not a training session. This is an entertainment session. Okay, we we are running late. We have one more question we want to get to. This is from Holly Holiday with Holiday House Publishing. I hope I said that right. And she says, I'm a big fan of the Novel Marketing Podcast, though I haven't caught every episode. Holly, what? What's going on? <laughs> I, actually, let me inter- interrupt real quick. There may come a time when we won't have all of the backlog episodes available for free. And so you have been warned, our dear listeners who are listening deep into the Q&A episode, we love you. <laughs> and so we are telling you, if you want to listen to the backlog of episodes, now is the time to do it because it may not be possible in the future. Uh, so Holly says, I have a small press, eight titles available, seven more coming out this year. Holly, way to go. That's awesome. And I was wondering if you have any advice on marketing the brand of an independent publisher with a variety of authors who write in different genres. We have a couple of quick tips. Uh, One is have your authors listen to novel marketing. (laughs) Uh, But but in all seriousness, uh, you need to train your authors to be able to market themselves. Because one thing I've noticed with indie publishers is they don't tend to spend much money on marketing. And they don't often have a lot of experience knowing where to spend money when they do have the money. And so the cheapest thing to spend money on is training for your authors so that they can turn their efforts into marketing. Uh, Thomas, I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna interpret this question a different way because this is something important. In case Holly is asking this question, when she says, "If you have any advice on marketing the brand of an independent independent publisher," so Holly, if you were asking, "How do I market myself as an independent publisher?" Um, I don't know if you're marketing to readers or if you're marketing to authors. If you're marketing to readers, the bad news is. No one cares who the publisher is of a book. And my challenge is ask some of your non-publishing friends, tell me the last novel you read, tell me who the publisher is. And 99 out of 100 are going to go, well, I'm not sure who published that book. So do not worry about marketing yourself to readers as a brand. In terms of marketing yourself as a publisher to other authors, that's something we can chat a little bit about. Okay, now I'm going to push back on this because I think it can be done, and I have done it. <laughs> so um, with Enclave Publishing, we created a brand for a publisher that meant something, that readers were passionate fans of. And we built a huge email list. And the way we did this, and Holly, you're not going to like it. 
my the way we did it, but we did it by focusing on a niche and turning down lots of great books that weren't the niche that we did. Because we had a niche, and then we had a niche inside of that niche. The niche was fantasy and science fiction, but inside of that was Christian fantasy and science fiction. Talk about a tiny niche. But we had passionate fans, and we would send out emails, and the open rates were through the roof. We had incredible open rates on our emails because we had passionate fans. And so the key is to focus on that niche and then thrill that niche where your brand means something. But Jim is James is right with 99.9% of publishers that don't mean anything. There's a few that mean something. Tor means something. Uh, there's a couple romance publishers that mean something. Uh, if you're published by those, people know what kind of book it is, and the brand itself has some fans. Um, also, some publishers have created brands that mean something like the Dummies brand. So, so you see the yellow book on the shelf in Barnes & Noble. That means something to you. And you may not know the author. You may care less about the author, but you know the Dummies brand, and that's valuable. And so you need to think, how can I create a brand like the Dummies brand? And the only way to do that in fiction, in my opinion, or at least the only way I've seen it done, is by focusing on a niche and having a consistency within that niche. And if you're publishing just books you like kind of hither and thither – it's not going to work. <laughs> and so yeah, and so I, I Thomas and I think we actually agree with each other. Oh come on, we've had a good point of disagreement. <laughs> own it, Jim. Own it. All right, it can't be done, Thomas. <laughs> it cannot be done. Um, but if you're yes, if it's a like Tor is a great example. Here you hear the name Tor if you're into fantasy and in science fiction and that kind of thing. You know that that book is going to be fall into that genre. But in your case, where you say you have a variety of authors who write in different genres. That's going to be a challenge. Um, another suggestion in terms of marketing in general for a publishing company um, is to only use measurable marketing tactics. Measure your marketing tactics and only repeat the ones that measured well. I, 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 that sounds very simple, but almost no one measures and almost no one repeats what worked because they don't know what worked. They just kind of feel they know what worked. And so find ways of measuring it. And if you can't measure something, don't do that thing. Uh, especially if you're on a really tight budget. I'd also recommend that you listen to episodes 54 and 74. It's where I talk specifically about what I did with Enclave. But it'll be harder for you to reproduce those kinds of results because of how broad your brand is. And one thing you may consider is focusing your brand. So you can start with a broad brand and then narrow it and kind of be known for that thing. And that may, if you're wanting to do publishing-based marketing where the publisher means something, that's the way to do it. The other way is be an invisible publisher like most publishers and just help your authors build their own brands. And I know some people say, oh, publishers, traditional publishers never spend money on marketing for their authors. And that's not true. They spend tons of money on marketing their authors, but they only market their very best authors. Because I, you spend $10 marketing your number one author that may come back in $30 worth of sales. Whereas you spend $10 marketing your worst author that may come back in $2 worth of sales. And so you only want to invest in the very best authors in your, in your stable. Thomas, do we have time for one more? Well, if we had a live audience, we'd ask them. So if you don't want to keep listening, I guess you can turn off the podcast. Turn we'll off do. now. <laughs> turn off now because there's going to be one more question. All right. Final question. This is from Dave Small. He says, is the Wattpad app slash website a good avenue for new writers to gain exposure? So, Thomas, before you answer that, let's give just a little bit of a recap of what Wattpad is. So if people don't know, they will know. So what is Wattpad? The name, what is it? It's right in the name. What? <laughs> <laughs> Wattpad? Wattpad.com is a website where you write your book 
kind of chapter by chapter and people can subscribe to your book and get the chapters as they come out and give you feedback. So it's an interactive way to write books. And it kind of is a platform for working with beta readers. And I think it started in the fan fiction space and it's very much there. Um, and then it's grown into kind of the indie publishing space. In terms of a way to get exposure, if you're trying to get exposure from publishers, Wattpad is not the place to be. Um, because if, if people who think that indie is poor quality have not seen fan fiction, which is the best fan fiction is at the level of like the medium range to low end indie published stuff. And then it goes way down from there. Uh, not to say that there's not some great fan fiction, but it's almost never edited at all. And so it's just in terms of usage, it's not typically very good. Um, but it can be great. Wattpad, I'm, I'm not against it altogether because in terms of motivation, it can be great uh, to be motivated and to get feedback and to have a, a base of readers. Now, don't think that those readers are going to then go and buy your book because the kind of people who use Wattpad are the kind of folks who might think that $4.99 is a lot of money to spend. But you, you know, let's say you have a few hundred readers. That's not a lot of sales to sacrifice for potentially some really great feedback to help you have a better book at the end that you then hand to a professional editor because there's nothing keeping indie from having the same quality as traditional publishing books. It's just a matter of hiring people who are good instead of hiring your friends. All right, folks, we're out of time. Um, This episode of the Novel Marketing Podcast is brought to you by An Easy Way to Make Money, better known as My Book Table. So if you have a WordPress website, you can get this plugin and start making money instantly. You make the money because of the affiliate link. Simply put, somebody clicks on your My Book Table link, then they go to Amazon or Barnes Noble, wherever, and whatever they buy, you get a cut of the sale. So if they buy your book and then they buy a big screen TV, you get a percentage of all of it. Really nice. And you can get 10% off My Book Table with the coupon code Novel Marketing. So I suggest you head for mybooktable.com. You've been listening to James L. Rubart and Thomas Umstadt Jr. on our episode 80 question, listener question ah. extravaganza. On the, on, we thought about getting sound effects, but we were like, we could be our own sound effects. Why do we need to pay for sound effects? So on the Novel Marketing Podcast, giving you novel ideas on how to promote yourself and your writing offline, online, and everywhere in between.